Father, we are hungry and we pray that you might feed us as we come to your word now. Amen. Amen. Every day, Noah would get up at the same time, follow the same schedule, and go to bed at the same time. He knew some who still chose to sleep on bunk beds, though never the bottom, and others who still kept their possessions in a locker. It took him years to learn not to tap on the table when he was done with a meal, and that he did not need to knock if he was going through an internal door. At 4pm and 10pm, he would stay in his room, ready to be counted, and taking a nap during the day was out of the question. Why all these strange rules? Well, because Noah was a former prisoner. And it took him years to learn to live as a free man. It was a great struggle for him to learn to live as who he now was, free. And for many of us as Christians, we struggle to live as who we now are, children. God. Last week, if you were with us or caught up online, Paul hammered the nails into the coffin of living by the law. He went through once and for all why living by the law does not work. Why trying to find your assurance, your self-worth in how am I doing before God today, in the ticks and crosses we write on our clipboards, is flawed, futile, and fatal. For living by the law, Paul wrote, was only ever a PS, a postscript, an interim measure, a placeholder. We were always intended to be a people of promise. And living by the law was nothing like living by the promise. For with the promise, God is both covenant maker and covenant keeper. And living by the law merely locks us up. It does not lead us to life. It imprisons us until the coming of Christ. But if we are not under the law people, who are we? That's the question our passage this morning addresses. And at its heart lies an identity check. Just as the ex-convict looks into his very own bathroom mirror and tells himself, I am a free man. So we are to look into scripture's mirror and tell ourselves, I am a child of God. And we'll consider um, our passage in three sections this morning. Uh, Our first, at the end of chapter 3, verses 26 to 29, know that we are now in Christ through faith. Know that we are now in Christ through faith. 
Let's skip back with me to verse 23. Uh, Before the coming of this faith, Paul wrote, we were held in custody under the law, locked up in God's good plan. The law had us under lock and key. We were captive to it, to the law reading out the riot, riot act against us again and again. The law serving as our prison officer and our strict governess. But, verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. Christ has come. Faith has been revealed. And this changes everything. Verse 26, where we began today. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. We are now, as believers, in Christ Jesus. If we have turned to him, then we are prisoners and wards no longer. We are in Christ people, children of God. And this came to us, not because we finally met the standard, proved ourselves good enough, showed them all our true worth, but because we believed. And Paul has soaked these verses here at the end of chapter 3 with pictures and explanations of what this means to be in Christ. Uh, We are baptised into him, verse 27. We've died and we've risen with him. We're clothed with Christ. We're dressed in his perfect white robes. We are all one in Christ, in verse 28. A wonderful new thing together. And we belong to Christ, verse 29. We are his precious possession. We are not under law people. We are in Christ people. Children of God. Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promise. This is the most extraordinary change of status. We stood guilty, now we are free. We were rightly in the docks. God the judge asked the question, upon what, if any, grounds can this people be acquitted? And Christ answered, by their faith in me. We have gone from guilty sinner to washed clean by Christ's blood and clothed in pure white robes, saint. This is the most extraordinary change of status. But this is more than a change of status. So much more. To be in Christ is not merely to receive a not guilty verdict, to be granted a free pass out of prison, to be justified by faith. It isn't less than any of those things. But to be in Christ is much more. It is to have a whole new relationship, a whole new life in him. The change of status is just the beginning. We will spend the rest of eternity working out what it means to be in Christ. Think perhaps of um, of entering a marriage 
You meet the, the love of your life, you have a fairy tale wedding, you arrive home from a blissful honeymoon, and then you return to your old flat, you update your status on your online dating profile, and you carry on with life much as before. But you don't, do you? It's getting married, it isn't just changing your status. You now live a new life as a married person. You pour your energy into getting to know and loving your spouse as you build a life together. The change of status is only the beginning. And so with Christ. And there'll be some in the room who have not yet changed status. We may know much of Jesus and of Christian things, but we are still trying to prove to the world, to ourselves, to God, that we are good, or at least good enough. We know the gospel, but we live by law. Don't let that be you this morning. Change your status. Become an in Christ person. For others of us, the majority, we have turned to Christ. But our faith has slipped back into being mainly a status thing. We tick the Christian box. People know that we're a believer. But we don't have much of a walk or life with Jesus. We rarely open our Bibles or pray for more than a moment. Church feels like a drag. We feel frustration more than love towards our brothers and sisters. Well, if that's you, there are extraordinary riches of Christ's inheritance for you to enjoy. Don't miss out. Look in the mirror. Remember who you are. Know that you are in Christ, a child of God, and come to him. Not out of guilt or duty or shame. Come to him. Do life in and with him. Don't miss out. To be in Christ is to have a whole new relationship, a whole new life. And to be in Christ is a personal thing. He has called you. He has known you. He has loved you. You are the one sheep he left the 99 behind to find. He knows and cares for you intimately. To be in Christ is a deeply personal thing. But again, it is more than a personal thing. It is more than me on my own, reading the Bible, praying, considering God's call on my life, weighing up how best I can serve with the gifts God's given me. It's not less than that, but it is so much more. Verse 26, look with me. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith for all of you who are baptised into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. And down to verse 28, you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is not just a me and God thing, says Paul. We are all in Christ. 
our whole church, along with every other faithful church. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Easy to say, Paul. But what does it mean? Well, it means, I think, that we are far more closely united as Christians than we might look, feel, sound, or seem to be. Perhaps even than we might want to be. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The divisions that had previously riven the church in two are gone. And notice, this is not a command, do not be divided. It's a fact, there is no division. Christ has united what had been divided. Jew or Gentile, there's one way to access God for both. Slave or free, the path to Christ is the same. Male or female, Jesus is the way, the truth and the life for both. Christ has united what had been divided. Now, this does not mean that God has taken away all diversity, that Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female are not even to exist any longer, or that they're still to somehow morph into one uniform category. It does not mean an end to difference, diversity, distinction. For we have a God who loves diversity. He did not have to create a world with millions of different species of animals and plants. He did not have to create human beings with different genders. But he chose to. And he, in his very self, displays the beauty of unity in diversity. For he is a trinity. One God, made up of three persons, Father, Son and Spirit. This is not about Christ having removed all diversity. It is about Christ having removed all division. The Jew needs not force the Gentile to keep Jewish customs, as was happening in chapter 2, verse 14. Nor may the Gentile judge her weaker Jewish sister for following the patterns laid down by the law. Scripture does not only tell the slave to join the revolution and tell the master to give up his privilege. It tells them to be brothers, despite their different stations in life. And the female and the male believer need no longer be at war as they have been ever since Genesis 3. Desire, rule, rule, desire, desire rule. For Christ has removed all division. Isn't that not the most extraordinary and countercultural thing? And we find it hard. And we're in good company. The churches in Galatia clearly found this difficult, hence why Paul wrote this letter to them. And I wonder whether maybe one of the reasons we find it hard is because we're not sure we actually want to be united. There isn't quiet separation 
usually the easiest way to deal with difference. Struggling to get along with that person? Avoid them. Can't get on the same page with that person theologically or regarding church practice? Talk about other things with them. Don't want to change how you worship or do want to change? Don't bring it up. Just slip out the back door and find a church that suits your style. Quiet division is the easiest way to deal with difference. The most comfortable thing to do when a difficult conversation is needed is to simply not have it. Or we say our piece, but we don't listen. The conversation happens, but there's only one side to it. So often, we just don't want to do the work, to be united. But Christ has brought us together. He has united us. So let's strive to live out that unity. This is one of the reasons why we're trying to be more interculturally sensitive as a church. Not because we want to keep in step with things happening in secular culture, or because we want to spend our energies and time just shuffling the Christians around from church to church instead of doing evangelism, but because we want to express our unity as God's family from the various countries we represent, and because we want no person to give up on Jesus because they think they have to become culturally British to follow him here. That's pretty close, I think, to what the Gentile heresy in Galatians was. And of course, it is Christ who has united us. We are simply seeking to express that unity. And there is a place for homogenous, single ethnicity churches, particularly where there's no common language. But surely, as Christ's people, our aim should be to live in and live out the unity that Christ has won for us. And this desire to deepen our unity as God's family is one of the reasons why we want to work hard on the theological questions and differences that we have across our church family around things like baptism, communion, the role of women, the work of the Spirit, this wonderful building that God has given us to use. Not because we almost believe exactly the same thing on every issue, but because silence so often ends up in separation. And quiet division is so often the easiest way to deal with difference, especially where there has been hurt and pain. And sometimes it is okay, of course, to separate. It is okay to have one church that baptizes infants and another down the road that does not. But doesn't Christ call us to work through our diversity, distinction and difference as best we can to lean in and find a way to love each other rather than quickly pulling away and separating. Because he has made us all one in him. I wonder where the barriers are for you personally. I wonder which people you'll talk to after the service today and which you won't. I wonder what or perhaps who is frustrating you in church life at the moment. Christ has united us. We are all one in him. Let us strive to live out that unity.
So Paul wants us to know that we are now in Christ through faith. Uh, Second, know that we are now adopted as God's children. From chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, know that we are now adopted as God's children. With the beginning of chapter 4, Paul takes us with an illustration into the realm of legal guardians and wards. And think with me for a moment of the uh, the 10-year-old son of the cook and the 10-year-old master of the house. These two, to all appearances, look similar, Paul says. The master's son might be dressed a little smarter, but together they are made to eat their vegetables, have behind their ears scrubbed in the bath, try to hide from their parents when they know they're in trouble. Both live under the authority of others. But though that 10-year-old master's son may look the same as the cook's son, he owns the whole estate, verse 1. Fast forward 20 years, and these two boys' lives will be totally different. The master's son will have inherited everything, and the cook's son will work as a cook, most likely. So also, Paul says in verse 3, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Under the law, we were like the 10-year-old master's son. We had been made a promise, but it was not yet ours to claim. We lived under the basic elements, the basic spiritual forces of the world, the coin-in, reward-out, vending-machine way of doing life. We were in slavery, Paul says. But, verse 4, when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Brothers and sisters, if we are trusting Christ today, then we have come of age. For God has sent his son that we might become his sons, his children. The eternal Son made himself nothing, took on humanity, was born of a woman, lived an obedient life under the law that he might redeem us. That's the language of the Westgate Centre of Amazon for us today. Think of redeeming a voucher. But Paul's first readers would have thought of the slave market. God has bought us out of slavery to be his own special possession. We who are homeless, hopeless orphans have been given a home, a family. We have been adopted into the family of God. And the language of sonship here isn't to play down the place of women in this family. It's to indicate that believers, both male and female, in Christ inherit the very highest, the greatest of privileges that would in ancient society have gone only to the oldest male child of the family. As male and female believers, we inherit everything, the very best that God has to give. For we have been adopted as God's children. 
Dee was no stranger to adoption as she began the hunt for a sister for the adopted daughter she already had. Yet something stirred in her when she was told of a little boy who was considered unadoptable. He was eight years old, had been in care since he was two, and displayed severe autistic traits and behaviours, tantrums, trying to escape, making himself sick. Dee took him in, and she poured the next few years of her life into teaching him that he was now safe, that he was loved, that he could trust his new family, that they wouldn't hurt him or send him away, no matter what he did. When we were homeless, hopeless orphans, God gave us a home, a family. He adopted us as his children. This is who we are. When we look in the mirror, this is what we see. You are known. You are loved. You are wanted. You are a slave no longer. God has made you his child. There are so many ways that we could apply what it means to be God's child and not a slave. I wonder whether one of the best ways to see the difference is by considering what happens when we fall short. What happens to a slave who falls short? They get the sack, they get a beating, they're kicked out, sometimes they are even killed. What happens to a child? Who falls short? They don't stop being a child. They're not banished from the family home. Their new parents may be disappointed. There may be some consequences. They may have some discipline to face. But they don't stop being a child. They don't get unadopted. This is who we are as Christians. God's precious children. No. Paul wants us to know that we are now in Christ through faith and that we are now adopted as God's children. Finally, know that we are now filled with the Spirit. Chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. We are now filled with the Spirit. This seems too good to be true, perhaps, this change of status, that God would take weak, broken, sinful me us and make us his children and promise us everything. How can we know that we really are heirs according to the promise? Well, we can know because we have already begun to receive our inheritance. So did you notice in chapter 3, verse 29 and 4, verse 7, we're heirs in a future tense. Paul is looking forward to what we will receive. But in chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, we are heirs who have come of age. There's still a future tense. Paul's not contradicting himself. We have not yet received God's full inheritance. But we are very much already receiving what God has to give us. Verse 6. Because you are his sons... God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. 
we have already received God's spirit if we are in Christ people. But maybe that feels like a bit of an anticlimax. I already knew that. Maybe we were hoping for something a bit more exciting. Well, before we start skimming through the rest of the letter to see if anything better's coming, let's dwell for a moment on what it means to have the Spirit. Because I wonder whether we, I know that certainly I, don't always appreciate quite how incredible that is. The, uh, the pastor, J.D. Greer, says that many Christians believe in the Holy Spirit, but relate to him the same way they relate to their pituitary gland. Grateful it's in there, know it's essential for something, don't pay much attention to it. And I don't want to underplay the role of the pituitary gland, I wouldn't want to lose mine, but can I suggest that we should have a greater appreciation of having God's spirit in us than we have of having our pituitary glands in us. Why? Well, God's spirit is God's personal presence living with us. Think for a moment how astounding it would have been for an Old Testament believer to hear that God would personally come and live with them. No need to go to the temple if you wanted to be in God's presence. No more waiting for a prophet to speak if you wanted to hear from God. It would have been almost beyond belief. But then Jesus came, and Jesus was God personally coming and living with his people. He was God made flesh, God given skin and bones. But Jesus told his disciples, written for us in John 16, that he would leave and that it would be better for them to have him go and to have the Spirit come. How could that be the case? Well, because Jesus was fully human. And that meant that he was limited. Limited to being in one place at one time with one group of people. The embodied Jesus with us was not what would best serve God's people in the age of the church as the gospel goes out to every corner of the earth. In fact, Jesus told the disciples the Great Commission couldn't even begin until the Spirit had come. They had to wait for the Spirit. The Spirit is God's personal presence, living with, living in us individually and as we come together as his church. Through his Spirit, God is with us in a way that no human being could ever be. He lives in the deepest part of who we are. And he is with us as we do life moment by moment, day by day, as we cry out for joy and fall on our knees in despair, as we sing his praises in a church service and exchange heated words in a church meeting. He is with us. To quote J.D. Greer again, the Spirit takes God's presence and makes it personal. Martin Lloyd-Jones apparently compared the experience of having the Spirit to the father who swoops his five-year-old son into his arms and whirls him around saying, you are my son and I love you. In that moment, the boy is no more his son, legally speaking, than he was the moment before. But caught up in his father's arms, he feels his sonship. 
so much more intimately. It is through the Spirit that our hearts cry, not just Lord, God, Saviour, King, Father, but Abba, Daddy, Papa. Verse 6. God has given us his Spirit. And perhaps we slip into thinking that having the Spirit is better than nothing. A Zoom call when you can't meet in person. Having the Spirit, it will have to do now that Jesus is back in heaven. That is not right, says Paul, says John, says Jesus. Spirit is a person. He is God in person, living with and in us. He's not a cheap rip-off version, a poor substitute for the real thing. To have the Spirit is to have God himself in you. What might that mean for us today, tomorrow? It means that when you feel something in your heart, as you read the words of the Bible, God himself might actually be speaking to you. When you feel a sense of comfort and peace as you pray, God himself might actually be wrapping his loving arms around you. When you feel convicted, as the Bible is taught, God himself might actually be changing you. And of course, our sense of the Spirit's work in us is not infallible in the way that the words of Scripture are. We have to test what we think the Spirit is saying to us against Scripture and in the light of the good Christian counsel that we find in church. But that doesn't mean we should go to the other extreme and write off the work of the Spirit as untrustworthy. In the Holy Spirit, we have God personally living with and in us, speaking to us, comforting us, guiding us, changing us. What, I wonder, is God's Spirit doing in you in the person sat next to you, in our church as a whole today. Wouldn't that be a great thing to chat about over coffee? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you might help us to see who we are, not slaves, but in Christ people, adopted into your family, heirs who have already in part come of age. Help us to see how incredible it is to have the Spirit, to have you with us and in us. Fill us more with your Spirit, we pray. Amen.